Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name is Mark Laithwaite and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 28 of the Endurance Podcast. And this week, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Jess Piasecki, GB international distance runner, Olympian, and recently has set the world alight with the second fastest female marathon time by a GB athlete on the all-comers list, with a stunning 2.22.27 in Seville. Jess, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for giving up your busy time. Can you give the listeners, for those who may not know your full background, your running background and your career to date? Yeah, sure. I um, got into running, I think I was about 14, 15 years old. I was very sporty as a kid and did sort of anything that I could get my hands on that would keep me moving uh, rather than sat down. And um, I actually played a lot of hockey at school and in my teenage years. And it wasn't until I was like, 16 17 I think after I qualified for the European cross country to represent Great Britain um, as an under 20 I thought oh perhaps I should take this running a little bit more serious and I think the switch then went from hockey being priority to running being priority and I didn't fully drop the hockey till I was about 18 I think and, and left to go to university um so since then I've just been sort of trying to make my headway in sort of international running distance running uh, so started off in the cross country um, and went onto the track in sort of junior years, so under 20, so probably up to age of 19, and then um, followed that up and tried to sort of make my way in the, the senior ranks. Um, there was a few ups and downs as we went through university and sort of, you know, getting jobs and what degrees, what you want to do with life. But um, yeah, since the past sort of three years or so, things have uh, come together really nicely. And um, in last year, so 2020 slash the 2021 Olympics, um, I sort of made my debut as an Olympian. And um, most recently, I ran two hours 22. And I think I was, I made the sort of transition through the distances as well. Uh, You know, starting off cross country, 1500 meters and right the way up. And I did my first marathon, um, first full marathon in 2019. So I'm hopefully now established as a as a marathon runner and can't wait for some more brilliant yeah no that's really really good intro and uh, gives people a, a good background so you mentioned there that you um you've uh, competed in cross country in the past and i think you competed at the world cross country championships in 2019 didn't you so um can you tell us a little bit about that experience and how you found that because that's quite a it's quite a competitive event, isn't it? Yeah, very. Uh, my first exposure actually to the World Cross was when I was 17. 
Um, that was way back in 2007 and that was just mind blowing. Um, and it was in Kenya of all places. So, you know, the crowds were unbelievable. You sort of got escorted from the bus to wherever the start tent were, was for your warm up. And uh, you couldn't see the, the course because it was just covered with people. And it was, oh, it was, just gives you goosebumps sort of thinking about it. So that was my first world cross. And then my next one was 2019, so quite a big gap. But um, I was captain of the team there, um, which was a great honour. And, um, you know, I, I actually relished doing my uh, speech. I think most people hate it, but I'm quite accustomed to standing up and presenting. So I had to sort of reframe myself to putting together a PowerPoint. Um, but, um, yeah, that was really good. And that was in our house in Denmark and they tried to sort of make the course a bit more of a spectacle because more often than not these sort of international cross courses are very flat dry no mud you know nothing like we are used to in the UK like Parliament Hill for example and it was exactly how they'd done it and uh, you know you ran up this roof um it was a very very steep incline and we must have done about four laps and that was 10k as well one of the first times it's been 10k for women and um there was sand, there was mud, and there there was all sorts. But it's just such a good atmosphere. In that particular race, we as a team came fourth, which is, I think, one of the highest place finishes, uh, finishing as a team for the senior women in a very long time. So, you know, we were really proud of ourselves for sort of pulling together and running really well as a team. We packed really tightly. So that was a, it was a great experience. Yeah, no, it sounds wonderful. But, uh, yeah, it always seems as though it's incredibly competitive and just like yeah. such a... <laughs> such a great number of athletes at an incredibly high level so to have come forth as a team in that is, must have been uh amazing especially as, as team captain as well but i do remember that course it was a bit yeah. there was a bit of a like a, a bridge or something that you ran over and yeah it was on it's near like a museum i think it was and you sort of ran up the roof over the um roof. and you did, ran through like a beer tent as well and obviously we weren't having the beer but um it was a really good atmosphere um, but they sort of built it up and hyped it up because uh, he really invested in trying to make this course really brutal. <laughs> and it certainly was, but it, it was, you know, still like super competitive. And like you say, it's it's basically eyeballs out from the start. And that particular start was up a steep incline as well. So you really have to just go for it from from the gun. Um, yeah, there's nothing like wheel cross, really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I can't imagine there's anything that's similar to that. And obviously you're doing Seville this year, and we'll come on to that, but um, that probably meant that you uh, approached cross-country a bit different this year, because obviously that's around the time of a lot of the sort of major cross-country events in the UK, but is, is cross-country still normally a, a big part of your sort of uh, preparation in the winter? Um, it's sort of probably changed over the years. Normally, yes. Um, I think... 2018 2019 was probably my last uh, full cross season because 2020 21 didn't really happen anyway mm. um and then last year 2020 21 22 we did toy with the idea of possibly going for the euro cross um but we wanted to see how i recovered after the olympics and i did a few road races sort of early on in the winter and then i sort of came to form a little bit on the roads sooner than we thought so I sort of just aimed to do the road races, knowing that um, Seville was uh, sort of on the horizon. Um, we did think, oh, could we dabble in the European cross? But it's, it's a different type of training, and I hadn't really done the grass-type work for a while. And there's always that element of injury risk, I think, with cross-country. And I think once you've got that 
you know road form you know do you want to then go and throw on a pair of spikes it's a little bit um tricky you know but I'd love to go back and do the Eurocross particularly one year um just because I think it was my first introduction to the sport and particularly on an international stage and the team camaraderie there is so nice I think when you're in a track and field of team it's so big you don't really get to speak to everybody you don't get to know each everybody whereas in a European cross you know everybody's mingling together and getting to know each other you know from juniors under 23s to seniors and it's it's really nice and Great Britain have a sort of a historical representation of um, historical um, background in terms of doing well at the Eurocross and so I would like to go back one time but we'll just have to fit well with sort of our road aims I think but it does give you that much strength and I think because I've come from that background as a junior that definitely helps you as a sort of a, an endurance-based athlete. So you're kind of monitoring your training going into the winter and looking to see whether you needed to do or whether that would be beneficial but you decided it was better just to stay on the road especially with Seville in, in February I guess. Yeah that's exactly yeah so when we came back from Tokyo um Obviously, that takes a big toll on the body because of the conditions and things and what I went through particularly. And um, we just sort of played it by ear a little bit. And I had a couple of races just to sort of find my feet again. And then we decided that, yeah, let's just stick to the road because that form's there really now. So rather than dabbling back into it, we'll just sort of stick with that avenue. Yeah, no, well, it definitely seems as though it was the right decision. <laughs> So, I don't, Mike, I don't know if you had anything, any thoughts from what we've said so far or uh, what Jess has said. Uh, fascinating background. And, and it, you find very few brilliant runners who don't find some cross country somewhere in the background. It seems <laughs> to be such a fundamental for, for most people to kick on from. Um, and particularly, every picture you ever see, the camaraderie and the team spirit in, in team cross country is, is so apparent and so evident. Yeah, definitely. And uh, it sort of brings you back to the roots and the the purity of running the basicness, which is, you know, what I love. You know, I, I, you know one of my favourite things to do is just go out hard and do a really hard run, no matter where it is. Uh, today, I was doing that on the trails, um, just, you know, going for feel and going up and down. And, and it was really nice. And I sort of come from that background, I think. And that's sort of the bread and butter of endurance running so if we can go back to cross one day then we will but obviously you know for my career it's where the marathon is so you just got to find the right balance and where it fits within the calendar it can be quite tight as well because you know you're really going to do maybe two marathons a year um three if you're really lucky but it, and then when you work back from all that and the build-up and the training sessions you need to do there's not much room for the maneuver so um, yeah, but cross country will always have a, a special place in my heart. <laughs> and you mentioned um, the Olympic experience. So how how did you find that? How was Tokyo? Yeah, it was um, a bit bizarre, really. So obviously, to be selected was such an honour and um, something I think most athletes just dream of. Um, so it was phenomenal, and just being able to work towards that goal then from sort of April time onwards was a real like you know pleasure really but I think the Olympic Games was was very very different to any other Olympic Games because of Covid and everybody realised that and appreciated uh, you know Japan had done their utmost to put on the event as well as they could um, which was you know fantastic um, 
but for for me particularly I think you know because the race didn't go well that that is overshadowing it a little bit and um I, I had sort of not high hopes but I just wanted to do my myself and my family and uh, my country proud and I don't think I was able to do that on the day just because I was a bit ill but that's the name of the game of the sport but um it was a it was a different sort of setting as well for the marathon because we were all the way in Sapporo which was uh, an hour and a half flight it's not just an hour and a half drive um so it's an hour and a half flight from Tokyo so we were very much removed from that Olympic village and um there wasn't much of an atmosphere in the hotel you know our little team did as much as we could to create an atmosphere but it was slightly different than what you might expect um but you know we still got to race and that was the main thing we were there for we were there for the competition um which was great and we did actually have some spectators as well and it was all very well organized on the day which was fantastic and um yeah I am you know I'm still great it's great to call myself an Olympian and it's something that you know I am still proud of but um, you know, I'd love to go back and um, put myself on the map a bit better than I was able to on that day. So probably mixed emotions thinking about it. But, I, you know, I, I can say I am an Olympian, so um, which is something that not many people get to say. So still really appreciative of that. Yeah. And obviously the next one isn't that far away. No, it's it's so crazy to think that that's, you know, two years away if that and again with the marathon because you have to plan so far in advance you think well that's maybe like three marathons away um the trial um so and I think you know there's going to be so many girls stepping up to the marathon that are sort of now starting out and you know might have just done the first marathon or got the first marathon coming up it's going to be you know be really difficult to make that team so um yeah we'll definitely do our utmost to, to be there for sure that's a fascinating way to look at it. I think most people would think of it by time, by calendar year, by athletic season. But to you, you put it as a it's three races away. Yeah. It shows just how diligent some of that planning is and how matter of fact it is. Yeah, exactly. Especially for the marathon, you know, because you, you think about a build-up like every six months and, you know, you might only do one, maybe one year if you want to sort of save your legs for the next year. And you might think, you know, rather than the actual Olympics, you're actually thinking about the trial race so when that's going to be uh, which again brings it forward um, and that you know who knows that might even be next year the trial if they decide to hold it you know a bit earlier in advance um, so yeah I've <laughs> got one marathon this summer and then we'll we'll see where the trials is and that will dictate a lot of our decisions following from that so we really do have to think about it quite soon. Yeah with um, with Covid being around and you finding out in April was it a strange time building up to the Olympics and did people that you know who are returning Olympians, did they find it fundamentally different to previous Olympics and was maybe being a first-time Olympian an advantage for some reasons? I think, yeah, possibly the latter because we, you know, had no expect, uh, not expectation, but we had no comparison. So I remember speaking to people that had been to London 2012, for example, and that was just a phenomenal Games. And I think even us as spectators can appreciate like what that must have been to be an Olympian at that Games. Um, so it was good that we kind of hadn't had that comparison and we were just, you know, happy to be there and like, this is cool, we're in a village, oh, look at the food hall and this is cool kit and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it was kind of good that we hadn't been to a Games before. Um, and in terms of the build-up, um, you know, I just very much left myself to my own devices really as I do most times. And I think COVID played a factor as to, you know, that was probably one of the reasons we didn't travel to a training camp or somewhere like that. I just wanted to keep 
any you know risk of catching anything and getting stuck anywhere or anything like that to a minimum um and just sort of kept things very very simple and the thing we had to think about was heat adaptation but you know I had my own little at home remedies for that but the uh, we were going out two and a bit weeks ahead of the race so we knew we'd have time to acclimatize as well um so yeah I just sort of carried on as we were pretty much and uh, we just had then a firm race in the calendar which was nice because you know that was something that had been missing for the previous sort of year before that mm, yeah we've we've chatted with um recreational and age group athletes who last year foil wrapped their sheds turned the heaters up did all these weird and wonderful things what did you have anything more scientific than that no not really um <laughs> given them a scientist as well um so I could have used the the heat chamber and things at work, but um, the treadmill wasn't that great in there. Um, and I just wanted to be able to like do my fast runs outside and, you know, on a treadmill, you sort of change your gait. So again, there's a little bit of injury risk there. So I do uh, quite a bit of biking in my sort of training program on the static bike. And we literally bought like a garden pop-up shed, um, like a plastic thing, a greenhouse and put it over my bike um and yeah wrapped the heats up and the garage is it's in the garage which is well insulated like my husband insulated it all um so we had heaters in there and I used to just like do a run and get get on the you know put the heaters on while I was running and go straight on the bike uh for anywhere I think I'd done a two hour bike in there maybe on a Friday um but yeah I'd get in there and get pretty sweaty <laughs> and we got up to like 30 degrees and obviously because you're in that kind of closed environment it gets quite humid as well so you sort of getting both adaptations and then just before we left actually like the week leading up to our flight was really nice like a bit like at the moment but you know mid-20s temperatures so it was sort of like a mini adaptation quick do a few sessions uh, before you get on that flight so that sort of helped a little bit as well yeah but you did man did you manage to get back to the olympic village post race um, I was in the Olympic Village for 24 hours. <laughs> um, so because our race was like one of the last things in the calendar. Um, and only the girls marathon team, the boys marathon team didn't even get to go, unfortunately. But the girls and the race walkers um, and a few of the staff, we managed to get a flight on the day after our race. Um, and which meant we were in the Olympic Village for a whole 24 hours. So we went to the food hall, went to closing ceremony. Um, had a little you know sort of gathering in the team gb house went to the food hall again and like we literally didn't go to bed because <laughs> we were just so we had to get up at like 4 a.m to get the bus to the airport to go home so we just said oh well, we'll just stay up and we slept on the way home and flight um so yeah we had 24 hours in the village <laughs> nice so, at least long enough to uh to to get a, a micro experience of the of the Olympics, I guess. Yeah, I think we were all bothered about the food hall because the food we'd had in Sapporo wasn't the best. So as soon as we got there, we were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Um, so we did like make the most of that opportunity as well. And obviously we were all like still recovering from the marathon. So we were, the harvest time was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, make, make the most of the food hall while you were there. Yeah. Um, so, so you said you did your first marathon in 2019. Um, so how have things sort of progressed in terms of your training since then and your preparation? Has it been pretty consistent or have you sort of adapted things as you've progressed? Um, yeah, um, so I did um, do, I went to do Frankfurt Marathon in 2015, but unfortunately I tore my plantar midway through. So my first full marathon was 2019 and 
at, at that point I'd work, started working with my coach who is my coach now Robert Hawkins and we worked together from 2017-ish and um, yeah and the build-up has changed every time I think ever so slightly well slightly I'd suppose so we did the Florence build-up um, and that was you know very Rob sort of led it and decent mileage but we did have a few hiccups in there you know like I got a blister I got a bit of a cold and things like that um so there's still sort of room for maneuver so to speak um and then the build-up to Tokyo because we did a few build-ups but then it was COVID so um we just sort of <laughs> did what we could in terms of when we we stopped like planning races during COVID to be honest because we just kept getting removed so we were waiting for something a bit more firm um then the Tokyo build-up again we probably played around with it a bit more because um you know obviously you want to get to that start line so much so we incorporated like the bike work a lot to supplement sessions um didn't do any double running um made sure we were incorporating the heat um and things like that so we had to um you know make sure that we were doing the right sort of work for that and make sure we were covering as well um and then so after Tokyo had a recovery and then build up to Seville again that sort of changed slightly um you know we were toying around with doing um another sort of mid-long run somewhere in the week um so that sort of changed different days um again no double runs but we incorporated like biking straight after runs and yes and then and this particular one I got to spend a lot of time out in Spain uh, beforehand um which enabled me to, you know, recover a bit more. So we were probably able to, like, push the training a little bit more than we had done pre-Tokyo, uh, but, again, still fairly sensible. Um, so then I think, again, preparing for the champs in the summer, they'll probably change again a little bit, but these are only tweaks. And, again, when you're preparing for a champs, you obviously have to have that race uh, sharpness as well a little bit. So you have to be in quite good 10K shape as well as being ready to run a marathon because it's more than likely going to be like a really fast 10k at the end um so yeah the I'm sure there'll be a few um tasty sessions in there somewhere <laughs> so yeah there's no sort of the you know to the basis stays the same you know the the big sessions uh that we need to do the big runs and things um but probably like the structure and maybe like some of the sessions might be tweaked here and there um yeah we're still so we're still learn every time and that, that second long run that you've put in on the Wednesday, the middle of the week. So what, what sort of length is the second long run then? Is it is it as long as the one on the weekend or is it um no, it's not as long as the one on the weekend yeah. and it's not always been on a Wednesday, so that's sort of what okay. was floated around a little bit. Um so it'd probably be like sixteen miles, I think, maximum. Um, but sometimes it might be twelve and a bike as well, depending on what we've done at the weekend. Um so yeah, uh, probably not more than that for me. And um, uh, is the majority, uh, would, the last episode we did was we discussed polarised training. So, oh, okay. you, yeah, and yeah, whether a lot of athletes training is truly polarised or whether it's more a pyramid. Um, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with these terms. So how would you see your training in terms of in, in, in that perspective, in terms of, you know, is it more, is it a lot of sort of low intensity but large volume with a little bit of, um, of high intensity or is it more in that sort of more work in that sort of threshold zone in the middle as well um I wouldn't say it's um 
like you know not it's not lots of volume um very very easy I wouldn't say we do quite a lot of that because I I've always done my runs fairly briskly um and that's something I've grown up doing um I think stemming from my Stockport Harriers days trying to stay with the boys round the depths of Stockport on a night time, <laughs> not wanting to get left alone. Um, so I tend to do my runs fairly fast anyway. So we definitely don't do lots of volume and slower. Um, I'd say it's quite a lot of quality um, and, you know, specific race pace. You have to get used to running at your marathon pace, which is what a lot of our, you know, we're in the depths of marathon stuff. That's a lot of the, the main sessions we'll do maybe two a week are dictated around sort of marathon pace work or maybe, you know, slightly quicker. Um, so I'd say we're, we're more geared towards that uh, really rather than like bigger volume and quite easy. Is that the thinking around the use of the bike then is that you can sort of get more volume in but not actually volume running? Yeah, exactly. And I think um, for myself, it just gives my, my body a little bit. You, you can recover a bit better. I think recover a lot easier. You can probably do more on there rather than going for the equivalent time of running and, and really take it out of your legs. So I can work, you know, quite just as hard. And I've got access to, you know, I have a Watt Bike Atom at home, which is great. Um, so I've got home set up gym wise, which is really good for doing things post run. Um, or if I'm away, then I'll find what I need when I'm away as well. Um, so yeah, that's something we've found has worked over the past few years, and we just have incorporated it now um, fairly frequently. Is that always static bike, or do you actually go out? On yeah, no, I, I have dabbled with going outside, and you know I've trained for triathlons in the past, but I haven't been outside on my road bike for a very long time. And when I'm in the depths of um, running train and I just don't want to risk myself coming off whether it's my fault or a car's fault so I'll uh, put Netflix on on my uh, what bike instead <laughs> much more comfortable and I guess it's a really good way to control those variables that the weather sometimes dictates yeah, for us when we're out exactly you know it can be quite miserable and um, if I was to go on my road bike I'd definitely be a fair weather rider so yeah I'll uh, I'll stick to my uh, what bike for sure <laughs> Great. Um, I don't know if it might, yeah, I mean, that obviously links into sort of injury as well, doesn't it? So I don't know if you had any thoughts on, on that yourself, Mike. Well, we've chatted before about <clears throat> some of the things, some of the transitions athletes make that, that lead to injury. I think when we're talking injury more with, with you, Jess, it's, it's delving a little bit back into the past. We know you've suffered and struggled with injuries for a period of time. Thankfully, we seem to be past, past that, fingers crossed. Um, something I've heard you talk about before is is which has resonated with me is your resilience since the injuries so you dealt with them but you've got a really nice take on education of athletes around injuries particularly some of the stuff we've chatted before about relative energy deficiency in sport so the listeners are familiar with that so it's more just just your thoughts around athletes trying to minimize the risk of injury dealing with them when they get them and then also the okay i've been injured i've moved on What's my outlook at the end of it? Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of athletes go through injuries and particularly, I think, for, you know, from a research standpoint, things evolve over time as well. When we were younger, we definitely didn't have as much information that's available now, um, which is one of the reasons why I have in the past, you know, tried to educate youngsters and help them through perhaps their own injuries and so on. Um, I think for myself, um, 
you know, if, if an injury does occur, I think now it's a lot more, it's not easier to handle, it's always a bit rubbish, but probably a little bit more pragmatic about it. And, you know, it's part of the job, unfortunately. Um, so it's more about, okay, assessing what's happened, um, getting the right people involved, whether that's physio, doctor, et cetera, just in training for whatever period of time and building from it. But I think, you know, we can always learn um, from what happened. And I think what we've done, I've just talked about in terms of evolving the programme, like the marathon running, it's, it's never the same. And, you know, that's probably one of the reasons you have to be willing to adapt, you know, just because x y and z athlete do however many miles a week and however many double runs doesn't mean that has to be your program you know everybody's so individual and it's about being okay with that um and investing sort of in your yourself a little bit you know if you want to strive and be the best you can be then it's about being okay with who you are who your body is what your body needs and and giving yourself that opportunity by you know adapting accordingly so I've, I've really learned that over sort of the years of whilst I've always um, exhibited resilience by and determined to come back and I really enjoy my running so I want to be running I've also okay with having a slightly different program to everybody else and me knowing that works for me is 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 grand you know I'm, I'm not really bothered so that's sort of what you know try to instill in a lot of younger athletes which I think is the message is getting there now, I think. Um, and this particular younger athletes, I would just say, balances everything. You know, it's really important to enjoy your running. You've got to be, whether it's running or whatever sport it is, you know, it's really, enjoyment's like a huge part of it. You know, I still have to be enjoying it at the age of nearly 32. I still got to be able to enjoy it to go out on a run when the weather's not so kind or I'm really, really tired. And, so if you can make the most of sort of those younger years by relaxing a little bit and not sort of dwelling on, you know, if you had a bad session and things like that, it doesn't matter because, you know, you've got years and years in this sport and it can take you so far and one session really doesn't matter. So um, it's all about sort of just the day in, day out, even if they're like some days are good, some days are bad. The fact that you're turning up and doing it is the main thing. So, yeah, I just like to instill in youngsters that sort of, I don't know, <laughs> relaxed five, I suppose, and then just being okay with an individual approach to your training is some of the key messages, I suppose. And and as you evolve and, and develop as an athlete, that the individual plan for you can change as well. N equals one changes for you as well as compared to others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But you might decide, you know, one day, actually I'm better suited to 1500 or I'm better suited to doing this and and that's fine and, and even if you're not sure it's okay to try as well because if that's what you want to do and you feel might work better for you and your body or whatever you enjoy better then that's that's fine as well um so it's just about all around a bit more flexibility I think you know people can get stuck into oh they've read this or they've seen this person doing this so that means I must be doing it and it's easy to get sucked in with the the age of social media and Instagram and, and all that kind of stuff everything's so visible um but it's just about you know it's interesting to see what other people might do but if that's not what's appropriate for you at that time then there's probably a good reason for that um so it's important to to be okay with that and you know trust in the process whoever's putting that process together for you as well like your coach or whoever it might be 
Yeah, no, that's correct. Um, uh, you mentioned earlier that um, your coach, Rob Hawkins, quite interested in sort of how that sort of coach-athlete relationship works, just because obviously you've got quite a lot of knowledge around exercise physiology from your background and your profession. I'm wondering how that works in that coach-athlete relationship. Does that sort of influence your training and is it more of sort of uh, reciprocal arrangement in terms of you inputting as much as, uh, as Rob? Um, probably no. <laughs> um, so I'm very happy for Rob to just tell me what to do and I just go and do it. Um, obviously, he'll discuss with me, you know, anything he thinks that needs discussing or, oh, I'm going to try this. Let me know what you think or, you know, what do you think about this run here? Um, that kind of thing. But so I've been asked this question a few recently. And um, whilst I, you know, have a background in exercise physiology, I think I have to turn my physiology brain off a little bit. Um, and the reason being is that if I, you know, was to do a research paper on some of the things that you might incorporate into your training, like altitude training, for example, you know, there's very, very um, equivocal evidence on altitude training. No one really knows the set formula. No one really knows if it works. Um, you know, if you, in terms of the research project, there's not a significant difference most of the time. But that doesn't mean to say myself as an athlete is going to employ some of those strategies, you know, so I might go to altitude or I might use an altitude chamber or things like that because I feel they might work. And I, I think there's a difference as an athlete, but probably at the back of my mind, I think this is absolutely nonsense, but I'm still really going to do it because it's part of the fact that I know I've included it. So if it is like a marginal difference, then at least I've included it in my training plan. And also, you know, a lot of your other competitors will be living at altitude or doing these kinds of things. So, you know, therefore I should as well um, in terms of giving myself a best chance if there is a difference. So, you know, I think I have to turn my brain off a little bit. It's, it's good that, you know, when I do go on team trips and things, there is often a physiologist there. So Andy Shaw is the physiologist for the Great Britain team and have sort of interesting conversations with him. and can understand and look at the research papers and um, things like that. And obviously working at a university, I can, I have access to a lot of people and a lot of uh, brains. So, you know, if I wanted to try some different shoes, for example, I could, I asked my friends, can you just check me on the, in the biomechanics lab? And if we do have a heat chamber, so I, I could use that and people on sleep you know if I need to change my sleep for the certain time of a race and and all that kind of stuff so it's it's nice to have the access and the understanding to be able to like understand the research but in terms of incorporating specific things into the program I don't really do that too much um I use heart rate I think that's probably one of the things I do find interesting I don't necessarily run to heart rate or anything like that but I always wear a heart rate monitor and look at it afterwards and there's certain you know if I do an easy run and my heart rate's um high I might think oh am I recovered why was that high am I getting ill I just sort of something to bear in the back of my mind um after the marathon for example my heart rate always takes ages to come back down so my heart rate seems to you know if I have like two three days off it goes into slob mode <laughs> um and stays quite high for a while even just two three days off um and I think it also indicates me, you know, when I am quite fit. So if I do an easy run and it is really low, then I know things are going quite well. So 
Um, I'd say that's the only thing that I use, but we don't train to it. It's more just me looking at it and thinking, oh, you know, this is where it should be or it shouldn't be that high or things like that. So, yeah, a bit of mixed there, really. Really interesting couple of points that you make in there. But uh, what you say there about use of heart rate very much resonates with what, what I how I use heart rate for my training, but also what I see as well in terms of the, you know, the, the trends. And uh, I think uh, there was a real sort of trend at one time in terms of people trying to run to heart rate. And I, I certainly went through that phase, but I didn't find it that beneficial. And because the changes that you see through a program mean that if you keep trying to run to, to heart rate, then you, you end up running too hard probably as you get. Yeah, bitten. spend all your time looking at your watch as well. Like you can't yeah, run. <laughs> Yeah, you get a bad, uh, you, you wear your arm out looking at you. Yeah, you probably just fall over then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, but very much those patterns that you talk about as well in terms of, you know, when you your heart rate moves up a lot after a marathon, but also you, so it's, it's almost using it, reviewing your training, but then over years you start to recognise those patterns and then you can use that information to try and, you know, to gauge where you are with your training. But yeah. you're not on a session by session basis using that to, to regulate your actual session. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, the, the other thing you mentioned there was obviously making that distinction between sort of significant research findings and then what you do in your own training. Because often as a professional athlete, you're looking for these sort of really fine margins that might make the difference between a you know a medal or a not medal or a top 10 or a not top 10 but not something that's going to be a difference that would be statistically significant in a research paper so uh, and also so that might mean that it's worth trying something that even hasn't necessarily shown a consistent significant effect but also yeah there's obviously a large body of evidence around the placebo effect as well and that what you perceive might have a benefit a beneficial effect for you is an important thing to consider and i think you know for for coaches working with athletes it's always important to try and gauge what the athlete sees as being important in their training and because if you're not taking that into account you might be undermining some of the the, the beliefs in themselves which, yeah yeah you know, people always have that like favorite session that they like to do don't they before a race or something that you know, the coach just like lets you do free reign because they know it's sort of going to be that little comfort blanket, sort of a bit like that. <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah, and, and just sort of uh, it ties into that, uh, you know, the psychology side of that. Is there anything you do uh, sort of specifically from psychological prep? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, so I have, over a number of years now, worked with um, a psychologist. He's called Ben Davis, and he works through the Chimp Management Company, um, set up by Steve Peters. Yeah. Um, so Steve and um, I started to work with him maybe 2015 2016 and then sort of dabbled on and off and then from the start of 2021 even before I got selected for the Olympics I sort of re-engaged with that Um, I think that you know the pandemic was really difficult and I I did suffer um, a little bit through there uh, mental health wise and you know I think most people did um but I started to work with him closely and then um, obviously then going up to the Olympics um, we were all sort of more focused on performance um, and then I probably speak to him maybe every anywhere between four and five four to six weeks at the minute um, but that might you know increase and lead up to a competition but he we generally talk about me as a person not necessarily me the athlete um, it might change because obviously athlete is part of me as a person, but I think things that I've had to overcome are, you know, the toy between 
do I still keep doing this running you know am I not meant to be doing something else and just being okay with those kinds of things but the mental side of things and my um sports sports psych preparation has definitely been a huge part of the past sort of um I don't know six months really it was a big part of my build up to Tokyo but then also part of my recovery being okay with what happened and then just um perhaps I'm trying to employ a different approach to my training as a whole and um in the build-up to Seville as well so yeah um you know I'm fully invested in that (laughs) uh, definitely yeah no you can see that and actually from what you've talked about in terms of your training and and your approach to sessions and how you think about your running it seems sort of really sort of balanced and uh, and sort of quite refreshing you know, for, for an athlete competing at your level. Yeah. And that's probably, some of that is probably reflected in the work that you've done around this that can, can help you sort of um, put things into perspective, which can yeah. be helpful, can't it? Yeah, it, it ebbs and flows. You know, there are good days, there are bad days. You know, I still get annoyed if I had a bad session, but it's about sort of, you know, stepping away from that and sort of parking it, that you know, the next day and moving on. And um, yeah, it's it's... And helped me so much the past, particularly like since Tokyo, I think September to, you know, now and beyond. It's uh, definitely been a huge game changer, I think, for me, just as a person, not necessarily my performance, but just feeling okay with, you know, what I'm doing with my life, really. Um, so, yeah, now I'm sort of really enjoying what, I've, what I'm able to do, you know, in terms of I'm able to go on a training camp. I'm also able to enjoy my work and my running's work as well and all that kind of stuff so yeah it can become a little bit difficult I think for people you know as you progress through the ages and you, know, you think oh should I still be trying to do this running <laughs> um I think most people go through that but yeah if that's what you want to do then go for it so that's kind of what I'm telling myself do you is there some psychological skills work within that as well or is it more just around sort of general um, I do sort of um you know obviously talking helps um but we do things like reflections like values and um you know just trying to work with my chimp a little bit (laughs) I think that's the kind of uh, things that we employ so definitely you know acknowledging the chimp and the separation from your chimp and your Mm -hmm. human who are you yourself and you know when you're having a good day because you're entirely sort of in human mode and um, you know just operating on autopilot for your computer and so you know I buy into all of that and I think that really works for me I mean it's, it's not definitely it's definitely not for everybody but um, I can see I can now I'm a lot better at seeing like you know why I'm having a bad day like stopping and thinking okay was that really necessary or and then thinking right okay what can we do to make it a better day um, so yeah all those kinds of things yeah, no, I mean, there's a whole, uh, as you're probably aware, there's a whole range of different approaches to psychological prep, and it's finding the one that works best for you as a person. As yeah, exactly, and yeah. You've had a huge turnaround into, you know, obviously, you know, uh, Tokyo didn't go as well as you would have liked, but to turn that around in just over six months to a uh, personal best performance, so obviously uh, what you're doing is working very well at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> We should hopefully keep on that sort of trajectory. <laughs> exactly, yeah. What's um, what's fascinating when you're chatting there is your passion for both your work and your running. And one of the problems nearly every athlete deals with is finding that balance, how they can coexist and, and be beneficial. How how do you enjoy a career and a running career that's so successful? Yeah, um, 
well, I'm part-time, <laughs> that really helps. So um, from 2020, I've been part-time, so I work three days a week, but, um, you know, being an academic, that sort of definitely spills over to five and six days. But um, yeah, I think I've always liked to have that separation and something else to focus on. Um, so it, it takes away, you know, for example, if you did have a bad session, then you haven't got time to think about it because you've got like a million and one emails to look after and sort and things to do in the lab. So um, I think that helps from that perspective. Um, and I figured that out when I was at university, to be honest. Um, you know, I like to have something else. I can't just be engrossed in my running. It's too much for me. Um, so that's that's nice. But then I'm also really you know interested in what I do. Um, you know, from the research side, particularly, you know, I'm really excited to do research projects. I enjoy my time in the lab and um, I want to progress in that as a career. You know, obviously, there'll be times where my running definitely takes priority and I just do what I need to do for work. And I'll always make sure I do that to, you know, 110 percent. But it might be like the extra bits and bobs have to wait, but that's OK as well. Um, but knowing that I can come back to that as a career is sort of exciting as well. Um, so, you know, when I am, you know, decided not to be competitive anymore, I'm sort of excited to invest in my career and try and progress up that academic ladder as well. Um, and, you know, my, my husband is an academic as well. So a lot of our conversations are research orientated. Um, so it does help to sort of have that commonality as well. Um, but yeah, like uh, I'm excited and driven by both of them. I think, you know, at the moment, you know, running is a priority, um, but I still fit it around um, my work and when I'm in work and things like that. But with academia, we are very lucky. We can work from home if necessary. We can, you know, have PhD students in the lab still carrying on projects and um, all that kind of thing. So it's it's, it is feasible and you, you don't necessarily have to be at a desk nine till five, which I think would be quite difficult. But I have done that in the past as well. Um, and when before I went part time, I was working sort of more than five days a week. So um, it did become a bit too much then in terms of just fatigue for everything. But at the moment, I've got quite a nice balance, I think. Mm, sounds like it. And, and it's um, I think it's the, the balance is more achievable than lots of athletes, particularly age group as recreational athletes. I, I pick up loads of people in clinic where when you strip back, they've come to me with some problems and you strip back the last six, 12 months and they were trying to grow their business. They were trying to go for a promotion. They were trying to do something else whilst also trying to physically peak for an event. And you're like, there just wasn't that prioritization. Yeah. You were just burning too many candles all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And people forget, don't they, that actually that takes a lot out of you. You know, you think, why are you tired? Oh, I've just been sat at my desk. But if you are you know, grueling or agonizing over something and trying to meet a deadline, it's, it's hard. It takes a lot, you know, you use, your brain uses glucose, it needs energy. So um, it, it can be quite draining. And I, I've very much realized that, you know, if I've got a particular busy week at work, there's no way around it, then there will be some training adaptations needed to be made. Um, but, you know, being okay with that is also um, a sort of big ask, but uh, I've definitely come to learn that over the years. You know, I don't, try and run myself into the ground now I mean sometimes I do and then uh, it comes back to bite me and I think oh why did I do that <laughs> um but yeah most of the time I'm, I'm trying to be pretty sensible now 
something I really wanted to try and chat about. A, a couple of episodes ago, we got um, Phil Sessamon on after oh, his yeah. London adventure. And something that was really fascinating with such a great performance, similar to yourself in Seville, was his just the feelings and thoughts practically just of the day of the race, you know. So if we switch back to Seville, did you sense it was going to be so good pre-race, during race? Was there periods in the race you knew it was going as good as you wanted to? Was there dark moments that... Um... To be honest, um, I I knew I was in good shape. You know, I think you can you get that sort of from your training. So that was good to know that that was sort of there. But you know, everything's with a marathon. It's like if you get to that start line, then it's sort of a relief. So you can kind of relax a little bit. You're like, oh wow, great! I'm so glad I'm here. Um, so there was that element of it, and then I just approached it as you know okay we're going for a run and we're going to do this pace for the run and, and that was it really and I was very lucky to sort of recruit um my now friend Stu Spencer um who paced me so he's a really good athlete himself um and he was sort of based back into from Spain as well so I got in touch with him after the half marathon in January and said would you be fancy you know coming around and doing 30k or so with me in Seville and he he thankfully took up the opportunity so it was very much we were out for a run um, and, you know, just getting my bottles and things. And I'm not very good at like sitting behind people. So we were literally side by side and we had a group of athletes with us. I think Gary Priestley was with us as well. He runs for Salford. Um, so his family were like dotted around all over the course and like giving him his bottles and stuff, which was like so nice. Um, but to be honest, for the first 30K, I have no idea what was going on. Like, I don't remember thinking anything particular. Um, I was just sort of, I think I was definitely in that kind of zone that everyone describes. Because um, when I think back, I, I don't really remember much. Um, then I think Stu dropped out at around 30K and I knew that last bit was going to be hard and I tried to sort of prepare for that. And we'd done, we'd done a session recently um, that was sort of like, part of it was a seven mile effort so I was like okay well this is like trying to visualize you know the canal we'd just done so many miles on um and I was on my own at that point and there was a group ahead so I was just trying to focus on them and then think about 35k we had to like go round in a circle on these cobbles in like you know what's probably a very pretty square but it was not probably what we wanted at 35k into a marathon I remember thinking who on earth put this in the course because um, my hamstrings were screaming at me and then from 35 to 40k I was just in a very very dark place just like trying to move Um, it was so painful Um, and then I think I sort of had a little battle with a woman who came six in the last 2k so I took her then she took me and then I took her like just before the line so that sort of preoccupied my mind in the last 2k Um, but yeah I, I haven't hurt that while like that much in a race for a very long time um but I'm kind of glad that it did because you know with COVID and things you, you forget about that element of the marathon and it's nice to know that you've been able to go to that dark place and come out the other side and you, you survived and think okay well I can go a little bit more then you know there's definitely more there so um yeah it was just the dark place was 35 to 40k for sure and I think my splits indicate that but um we I knew because we went through halfway faster than intended um so I knew it was going to come back but I just had to sort of keep moving and um 
yeah, it was just uh, excitement really at the end. Just nice knowing we'd done the job we sort of came out to do. And arguably now, female British marathon running has never been stronger, never had more strength yeah. and depth. So many people performing well. What, what do you put that down to? And what do you see? What do you think you guys and girls will be able to achieve in the next few years? Yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's great. And I think, you know, you've still got the like some people who haven't done a marathon yet who might. And um, I think that's going to be really interesting. Um, I think... I think more people are just pushing the boundaries and having belief in themselves. And it doesn't necessarily have to be from your own, you know, distance or discipline. So you look at the likes of, you know, Mark Scott at the weekend got a bronze medal, Lorraine Eugene got a bronze medal at the Worlds and Laura Muir, Keeley and everyone like that, KJT, doing like incredible things. And you think, then you actually see them in the flesh and they're just human beings, you know, they're just... um someone that trains really hard and you know gets their head down and, and does the work that needs to be do and I think you can see that and especially when you've been in that team environment and chat to these people you think well they're not you know they're extremely talented and everything obviously and, and work very very hard but you know everyone else is as well so it's that kind of energy that gives us all that belief that actually we can challenge the front and we can stick our nose in and um you know it's not just us as well like molly side or getting a bronze medal at the olympics that was a great thing for sort of all distance running in terms of females so um yeah it's it's just great to be able to see everyone doing that and take inspiration from it so and it doesn't necessarily just have to be in the marathon so i think we can definitely challenge and things like you know the the world half champs and stuff you know that might come up this year if it doesn't get cancelled and but in years to come we could have a really strong squad and get those team medals again. So, yeah, it's, it's exciting times. Mm. Yeah, certainly as, as a fan and a spectator, it's phenomenal everywhere you seem to turn. British athletes are, are turning up. <laughs> Good. Hopefully we can be one of them. Mm. Yeah, no, it's great. It, it is, uh, it's, as a spectator and as a, as, a, as a British spectator, to see us really, you know, with athletes that can be in the mix, uh, particularly in championships as well. Um, and, and, and in the marathon, which is, you know, one of my, my the areas that I'm most interested in is, is brilliant. Um, not had that for a few years, so it's great. Just to pick up on a couple of things that you said to Mike there in terms of, so uh, obviously you're talking about how the race went, it sounded like it was a, a positive split then. So you, you went through faster halfway and then, but, but in terms of the overall, uh, objective you said that you'd be obviously been so, so what sort of time did you have in mind what were you aiming for was it the 222 or um I think you, you know I think it was sort of around that mark that's sort of what we'd been training towards and in the summer you know although Tokyo didn't go well like I knew I was in good shape and I was in PB shape then um and just because the race didn't go together it's the build-up's still there so you've got that sort of that layer that foundation um and, you know, from my half marathon and I'd done PBs at 10K in the October and stuff, I knew that I was capable, um, but it's just being able to like, go after it. And if we ran too fast, holding on, if you run too slow, picking back up and actually coming it all together on the day is, is not something that happens all the time either. So, um, yeah, it was just we sort of went out with that plan in mind um are running around that time but knew it would be a big ask um but you know wanted to you know I wanted to try and qualify for the world's team um so we knew I had to run run pretty fast to, to get close to that so um that was definitely the aim so 
yeah, it came together on the day, which is always nice. Yeah, it's brilliant. And uh, have you started to pick it apart a little bit, the performance, to see where there might be opportunities to sort of even go quicker than that in the future? Or? Um, a little bit, not too much. Yeah. Um, there was a few things that didn't go to plan, like in terms of drinks and like gastro stuff. And so there's all those kind of tweaks and things that we can make. And, um, you know, perhaps if I'd have gone, you know, 10, 20 seconds slower through halfway, I might have had a less of a last 5K like bomb. But um yeah I don't think I, I couldn't have done any more on that day you know I did my best on the day which is great but there are definitely areas to build on um that could be exciting for the future really and um even little like bumps and hiccups that you get in the train you think oh well if you know that didn't happen I could probably do x y and z so um yeah but we're very much very happy with what went down in yeah. Seville and um now just sort of building back into training and um yeah the miles have already started again <laughs> no it, it, uh, absolutely I mean it, it, certainly not the suggestion that you'd be um finding too much in terms of faults in that performance because obviously it was you know an amazing performance but I think it's just the a- athlete mindset isn't it to start to try and find what how could we now build on that and it, it go even faster potentially oh yeah definitely and I think because right. it's sort of closer to 222 than it is 223 you think oh well that's a barrier there <laughs> Let's try, but yeah, I was definitely thinking about that on the way home. <laughs> and um, you mentioned earlier about the sort of the amount of time between marathons and the number of marathons you can do in a year. And obviously, your next one's going to be a championship marathon, which probably isn't going to be one where you might be thinking more about time, probably more about position-wise uh, for that. So it it can be quite a while before you get another chance to 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 actually target the time, can't it? Yeah, exactly. So um, you know, we'll have to be in sort of that kind of shape again pb shape but in order to be able to compete at that level but like you said it probably won't happen on the day in terms of the time because they tend to run very differently the champs and it's all about competition which is exciting as well because um it'd be nice to do one of those kinds of races again um but yeah again after that it's depending on the you know when they hold these olympic trials um and we'll work back from there as to when we might fit in another marathon to try and go out for a time specifically so um once we sort of know those plans we'll be able to work backwards but yeah I try not to get like too carried away because it can snowball quite quickly it's always good to just focus on the here and now even you know the world champs whilst it's soon it's quite far and I think there's a few things in between then that we'd like to do so it's important to have those kind of small goals and targets that you can just focus on rather than thinking oh I've got this big race in however many weeks <laughs> Yeah, no, staying in the present and thinking about the training in the coming weeks is uh, yeah, exactly. definitely the way forward, isn't it? Uh, well, I mean, that, that, that's been fascinating for me. I don't know, Mike, have you got aware of your time and not wanted to keep you too much longer? But um, Mike, have you got any more questions that you wanted to ask? No, no, that's fascinating. I think all I wanted to do, because I've listened to it and think it's phenomenal, I did want to tip our hats to your own podcast. <laughs> I think if we can share that with our listeners, if you wouldn't mind telling people what it is, what it's all about, because I've I've listened and it's fantastic um, content. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we're actually on a bit of a hiatus at the minute because we're all so busy. I'm sure you know how uh, how busy, how much time it takes. But yeah, so we have um, a podcast called the Female Athlete Podcast, and it's with myself, uh, my co-host Dr. Georgie Brunvels and Lucy Lomax. Um, and collectively we talk about 
all things female, really. Um, we started off by detailing the menstrual cycle or contraceptive pill use um, and sort of the physiology behind that, the symptoms and management of it. But then we also delve into sort of the differences between men and women. So that might relate to sports. So we talk about sports bra uh, fitting, um, how football boots are actually fitted for men. And we had someone who'd actually built one specifically around a female foot. Um, and yeah, we talked to all kinds of people. I think uh, Eleanor Baker has, just, has been on and Georgie Taylor Brown. And we've had some really good guests on um, that make it quite interesting to get those sort of personal insights as well. So there's about... Um, each episode is about 40-ish minute long um, and we like to sort of give our own science but then we'll either speak to an expert or an athlete or both so yeah it can be found on all your usual podcast platforms <laughs> if you want to go and have a listen and a download that'd be cool mm. no it's fantastic and I think a lot of our listeners will resonate with our content it's it's not dissimilar to the stuff we try and share about so um so absolutely if you if you're listening to this get across to the female athlete podcast yeah, no, so, yeah, d- definitely good advice. And in terms of social media and so on, do you do anything like that where people can sort of follow you and, uh, and hear about your progress? Yeah, I, um, I'm i not very good on the old social media, but I try my best. I'm just trying to look up my Instagram handle now, actually. Um, I'm definitely on Twitter. And just to confuse everyone, I am at JessCoulson90, which is my maiden name. Um, and then my Instagram handle, I think, is at Jess underscore Piasecki underscore. Um, so, yeah, I just post general running pictures and things like normal, really. Um, but, yeah, you can follow me on there. And uh, I like to keep you updated on where I'm at and what I'm doing. So if you want to go have a follow, you can. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be lots of people wanting to follow that and follow your progress into the summer, into the championships. Oh, thanks. So- yeah, it's been an uh, absolutely fascinating discussion. We've really covered some different ground, haven't we, Mike? And uh, oh, yeah. really, all of it really interesting. So thanks for your time today. It's been brilliant. Yeah, good luck at the Worlds. Yeah, oh, good. thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store, at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the Endurance Physio, at the Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD Sport X. That's MD Sport EX. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the endurance coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com, where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon. <laughs>